0: So we're in our current series in the the Gospel of Mark, um, Servant, Saviour, Son of God. We are in Mark 4 today and I'll be reading from Mark, um, from verses 1 to 34. So please follow in whatever version you have at home or follow over to see what's on the screen. I shall be reading from the ESV. I would like to read the text, pray that God will help me to teach the text um, and for us to be receptive to the text and then um, I will say words. <laughs> so beginning at verse 1. Again, he began to teach inside, beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Listen. And it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given. Along the path where the word is sown. And then and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulations or persecutions arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The others are the ones sown among the thorns. These are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in and put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and then the air, then the full grain in the air. But when the grain is ripe at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come and he said with what can we compare the kingdom of god or what parable shall we use for it it is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth on earth yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Lord, um, for those who've, again, had the opportunity to have their breakfast and feast on that which is your, our physical food, Lord, we are grateful this morning that we have spiritual food in which, Lord, you have also provided for us daily, dear Lord God, like manna in the days of um, Moses and the Exodus. Lord, you have provided for your people that we may be nourished, dear Lord God, may be packed and may be ready, Father, for the challenges of the world outside. We are so thankful that, Lord God, you've given us this word because, again, it is life to us, dear Lord Father, and things in which we can live by, Lord. But it's also, again, to understand that, Lord Father, that we don't merely have, as it were, to be conscious of the laws that we have within the land that we have, as thankful for them as we are. But, Lord, it has been given to us for those who have been called and have been chosen, dear Lord Father, to also know the, the plans and the, and, and the laws and the and the, regi- the regime of the kingdom of God. And Father, for this we are thankful. Because Lord, we can, as it were, prepare ourselves and prepare our hearts to live, Lord God, in accordance uh, with your kingdom. Because this we do, Lord God, not because we believe we, we um, are earning, as it were, our place in you. But that, Lord God, we, we, we want to respond to the grace that has been given to us. And live joyfully, there, Lord God, in the freedom you have given us as believers. So thank you, Father, this morning. Thank you for this word. Help me, dear Lord God, to teach. Help our hearts, dear Lord God, even as um, the, the, the parable explains, dear Lord, to help our hearts to be good soil today that will grow, dear Lord God. That there, there will be a, a 30 and a 60 and a 100-fold blessing, dear Lord, from what we learn today because, the Lord, your spirit is indeed at work. Have your way in us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. So my title today is The Man Who Told Stories. The Man Who Told Stories. And like I said, I want to I wanna take a long run in because I believe that if I do the groundwork, it just makes the whole idea of looking at the text easier, putting out some things that hopefully will help us to understand what Jesus is doing here so why does jesus tell stories well the simplest answer to that is because we tell stories isn't it we live by stories however we do not often call them stories as stories today have believe it or not a pejorative term a pejorative meaning of not being true stories are what we Get in children's books, novels, movies, and, in some people's mind, the Bible. What we get from the newspapers and, and acad- the, the, the academy and their papers and all the rest of it are articles and exposes of facts, but not stories. The stories we live by and what all these people do are actually unspoken stories. They're the narratives, the narrative filters in which we use to make sense and also add purpose to our lives. Within these narratives are a set of assumptions that create the values we cherish and we hold the key to them. There are times when, you know, to kind of unpack this idea, where when you're sitting down with that morning coffee and that bacon butty, that it's not just merely food, but it's, it's almost like the food of the gods. Because of the narrative you've made. You've been looking forward to it. There are times where that football game with the guys and with the boys is 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 epic. It's more than what, and the sum total of its parts. It's, it's huge because of the narrative, because of how you've been looking, up, looking forward to it. The same thing with the dinner party with the ladies that you've been looking forward to. There are narratives in which we live by, and it's those stories in which I believe Jesus speaks to. Jesus now comes with his own stories, but these are not ordinary stories. Personal stories like our own, but myth busting mega narratives that reduce our assumptions, uh, redress our assumptions in the light of God's wisdom. So Jesus goes, "Yeah, I, I see the stories in which you live by, and so often where you find that a, a parable comes from is is from that place in which he knows what's going on in their minds." And so he speaks a parable in order to address those narratives in our mind, those prejudgments. So let's look at a couple of, of, of recontextualized examples of how Jesus uses parables to lift the lid on contemporary misconceptions or even prejudices. So before I even jump into the text, I want to look at two parables within the Gospel of Luke. First, let me say this, our 21st century understanding of parables is often misleading. Thinking them as short stories with a spiritual meaning, which does not quite do them justice. Within the original context, they were often offensive and as such difficult to comprehend by the first century audience. Let me take the first one, the Good Samaritan. I want to reframe it in our local demographic, which is contemporary majority black within our local fellowship. And I want to put the man that is set upon and is attacked as a black man, who now becomes the victim of bandits. The Levite is now A nation of Islam minister. And the priest is a Black Lives Matter chapter leader. And the Samaritan is a white police officer. With this work of recontextualizing, we start to get the full thrust of the text. because now we see a, a racialized scenario in which the prejudices of the culture start to come to the surface why does the black lives matter chapter leader not come to their aid within the context of the, the original parable the priests and the Levite really couldn't touch somebody they thought was dead Because it would harm their ministry because they were going to Jerusalem. Maybe the Black Lives Matter chapter leader doesn't go to their aid because, well, I can see him breathing, so therefore he's not helpful to the cause. Maybe the Nation of Islam guy sees a cross on the black man as he's on the floor and he says, well, this man eats of the white man's religion. I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to be able to help him. And he moves along. But the white police officer gives him mercy and grace and therefore becomes his neighbor. When you think about what this meant for the the first century Jew. The prejudice that, has arro- that, that arose between the Samaritans that Jesus taps into was such that they would walk around the country in which the Samaritans live. And as we've just been looking through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah earlier this year, you suddenly see the fruits of where this bitterness is. For some 400 years, believe it or not, this resentment has been building because these Samaritans have done everything in their, in their power, it would seem, to oppress Jewish, the Jewish nation. Much like as we would look at that white officer and see he typifies all the oppression in which we have suffered over the last 400 years. Let me now skip to the prodigal son as another case in point. Now, I know today that wishing a father dead is, not, is, is, is still a big deal in order to inherit. You know, I, I kind of think of the Menendez brothers, Lyle and Eric, who, again, was very infamously um, convicted for their father's murder, their father and their mother's murder. But in the ancient world, just wishing your father was dead, even just speaking the word lightly, was enough to have you as an outcast in the community. However, this story has a double dishonor to the father as he now takes the father's resources and wastes it. This type of lifestyle also brought shame to the father. And this is the older brother's point, which he raises with the father. He has wasted our resources. He has brought the family's name down. So even if he is able to forgive the first sin, which was unthinkable, the second one puts him too far off. So let's recontextualize this for today and say that the the son was found guilty of sexual offenses against minors. Something that we really despise. How do you welcome a person like this back into your home even when fully repentant? Now your minds are starting to wrestle with the cognitive dissonance that challenge, that, no, I can't quite perceive this, and it's that rustling in your mind, oh, eh, eh, eh." it's a sticky point. As on the one hand, you believe him to be beyond forgiveness, but on the other hand, you need to deal with the fact that he is truly repentant, which in the eyes of the Father is acceptable for renewing fellowship. So we might think of it in our times where, well, we'll come and we'll allow him back in, but let's restrict his access. Let's give him the minimal. But the father gives him a party. Everyone's brought in to the point where the older son says, you've never even done anything like that, even for me. As you can see from these two examples, parables were not merely short stories with a spiritual meaning. They were critiques on the cultural biases and the blind spots of the current age. In the Good Samaritan, Jesus is challenging their so-called well-justified racism. In the Prodigal Son, Jesus is challenging their cultural hierarchy of sins. And the limits in which they've placed on forgiveness. The father in forgiving the son and allowing him back into the house runs the risk of being put down by the community for condoning sin. And this is exactly what the Pharisees' point was with Jesus. You're condoning sin. You're soft on sin. In other words, Jesus is challenging our view that God needs to be rescued from his reckless policy of forgiveness. Because we are like the older brother. We see more clearly that you can't really do that. So when you see these parables in this contemporary framework, it gives you a feel for the challenges these stories pose for their hearers because Jesus so often pushed the boundaries in his parables, it would leave people with the difficult task of having to unpack much of their own issues in order to be able to deal with the truths that he was presenting them with. Much like putting new wine into new wineskins. Comes to mind here. With our old, raggedy selves trying to receive the new truths, the new wine of God's gospel through Jesus Christ, we would explode. Because our old, saggy, dry-up wineskins can't handle it. The only hope we have is an Ezekiel hope. A new heart made of flesh. One that's able to expand and grow with the new values of the kingdom. For this reason, parables could only be understood by a spiritually awake person. A woke person in a spiritual sense. Whom God permitted to see beneath the complexity of everyday life and are able to now see as God sees. A key feature of Jesus' parables is also the father, the king, or the sower. Now these figures are important Because it it completes what I consider to be a triangle. So many often our stories really reflect on the horizontal, person to person. But what you have with Jesus now telling these myth-busting stories is that now God is introduced into the equation and so through the father figure, through the king figure or the ruler figure and the sower figure, you now have somebody who stands above all of the human interactions and now interacts with them and now you have his perspective added to yours. So what you have is a new perspective when you have the God figure introduced into the, st- the way that you tell stories. So what about the issue of concealment? As a function of parables. Well, you know, well, they're not supposed to be understood, right? The way in which the kingdom of God functions is often directly different to how the kingdoms of the world operate. Therefore, the way the kingdom becomes concealed is because people are resistant and not subject to the work of the Holy Spirit to thinking within the parameters of the kingdom of God. As the culture drifts further and further away from the biblical worldview, you start to notice that they start to wrestle with the morality of the Bible. It starts strange enough by just thinking that, yo, know, those Christians are, you know, they're strange. They're, you know, the, 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 the morality of the Bible is, is strange and quirky. But as they drift further and further along, they even start to frame the morality of the Bible, as evil. This presents a challenge for us. Looking at our text now. So why does Mark now go into a section about how Jesus told parables? Well, in Mark's presentation of Jesus, so this is, again, as we've we've established from chapter 1, Mark is making a presentation of Jesus in which he is there to give the evidence that should be convincing for any Jew and hopefully for any non-Jew, any Gentile, to be convinced that this is a man whom we ought to put our confidence in, a God in whom we can trust. And so now, he is given the evidence of Jesus' wisdom and teaching. No Messiah would be worth his salts if he was not able to surpass the abilities of past leaders of Israel. So, the teaching of Jesus surpasses that of Moses. As he's able to nuance the law and make applications in his ways that he could not. He's greater than Moses. As a teacher and a teacher of the law. Jesus is also wiser than Solomon. In that he can model the good life in a way, in the way that he lived. He can model the good life. He can't just write proverbs about it and say this is what you ought to do. He lived it. Unlike him who succumbed to evil and followed the seductress woman in which he spoke so often about. So in that sense, Jesus was greater than Solomon. So looking at these breakdowns, I'm I'm not going to go so much into the details of what happens in each of these parables because I think again we are starting to see what those paradigms it, what the paradigm is it helps us to understand how we, we we understand it like a paradigm is is a method of what I've just done in the introduction of how we could look at the text um, with that filter and start to see how these things were challenging so in the first section, the parable of the sower. So often called the parable of the sower, but again, it's, or the, you know, but realistically as people say, it's about the four soils, or the four, the four seeds in four different particular grounds. And it would appear that Jesus is lacking in the field to the human heart, and that they are in varying, that they are in varying degrees of receptivity. This can be contrasted with verses 26 to 29, where Jesus emphasizes that the mystery of why a seed grows or how a seed grows is something beyond human comprehension. The farmer is, you know, is sleeping illustration, but we must not take this to mean that he is beyond his level of that. All the seed growing is beyond our level of cognition, our our thinking mind. This challenges the assumption that ultimately. Um, if the message is right, then ultimately everyone will receive it. But Jesus obviously is correcting this assumption, which we make, which is that actually the state of the human heart varies. Therefore, the potential for growth lies with God. And what he has made fertile, there is no plowing that can make a whole society or community receptive to the gospel. In other words, there's nothing we can do personally that will put the human heart on the right level to receive the gospel. Neither does this mean that we can doctor the seed to make it more responsive. What can we do so that we can get that hundredfold crop? Well, maybe we doctor the message. We'll make it a bit more receptive and people will receive it better. We'll speak a bit more on that. A little bit later. The next section, 10, verses 10 to 20, now talks about the purpose of parables. It would be wrong to assume that Jesus told parables as a way to be opaque. In other words, not to be able to be seen through. As verse 13 highlights, an expectation that they, the disciples, should understand all the parables. So this whole idea of, well, you know, Jesus is trying to be mysterious and all the rest of it, that's not what he really says. Even though this section goes into Isaiah, it's talking about the lack of what we see in, happening in, in the first nine verses of the human heart not being in the right place. So, seeing, they will not see. So, Jesus is not trying to not be under, misunderstood. Resistance to thinking in line with the kingdom will leave you ignorant. Because you you will only have your own set of assumptions, the stories we tell ourselves, to work with which are faulty. For this reason, we need to strive to have a kingdom-minded world view. or we will fail to understand the Bible. One thing of note in the way Jesus unpacks the parables to the disciples is that he puts no blame on the seed for not being successful. This helps us today because we are likewise preaching, if we are preaching a faithful message of the gospel and people are unable to receive it because of the state of their hearts, then it makes no sense tampering with the seed in order to make it more fertile. Maybe they will receive it if there's no original sin. Maybe if I respect the fact that they're good people. They're made in the image of God, we can say that, but it's not the whole truth about who they are. Maybe they will receive it if I promise it will make their problems go away. You know that makeover gospel, Jesus, Jesus is your makeover, like a gut quan. Change you, transform you, and see. You know this is you'd be a new you. As you will find out in later in the later verses of the text, it is not our duty to try and doctor the seed in order to make it more receptive. The next section, a lamp under a basket, the 21 to 25. This section, I believe, makes it even clearer that Jesus is not being enigmatic for the sake of being difficult. He agrees with what we're supposed to do. A light is supposed to give light. He's not the Riddler. You know, that, that villain from Batman, those of you who are familiar with this, who, who, who is nauseating. He doesn't want to be understood. He wants you to kind of dig deep and try to think, oh, I wonder what he means. He's not that character. Riddle me this, riddle me that. He is not the Riddler. The light of the gospel is for the purpose of bringing light to people as light bulbs are created for the purpose of bringing light into dark places. It, it can only but give light. You don't put it under the bed. You put it on a stand. You want it to be seen. It's, it's not, oh, I'm trying to do it. The warning then goes out that if the gospel is not bringing light into your life, then it's because you're going blind. I think John 9 brings this out very well. For those of you familiar with John 9, again, it's, it's that picture of a man who is blind from birth. And as he's interacting with Jesus, Jesus cures his blindness and at the same time is giving him the gospel. He receives the witness of Jesus on the basis that no one can do what he has done unless he was sent by God. The blind man then becomes a foil, a a, a contrasting character to the Pharisees who claim to see. But in spiritual terms, cannot see the works of Jesus for what they are, but rather choose to see him as being from the devil. Unwilling to see Jesus as the light of the gospel presents it presents to them to choose to rely on their own faulty mental faculties. And so the only assumption they can make is that he is a devil. But the blind man says, can a devil do these things? As such, the Pharisees then become blind from a spiritual perspective. The light of the gospel is shining brightly in John 9. Is, Jesus is not being opaque. he's he doing stuff the Messiah can only do. The Messiah from God can only do. But because of the faultiness of their assumptions, they can only see him as a devil. Let's jump to the next section, the parable of the seed growing. Verses 26 to 29. The fact that the man, or the evangelist, is sleeping does not depict unfaithfulness, but is here to illustrate that above the level of his consciousness, a work of making the seed grow is happening. He's sleeping because he's unaware. He just goes out and he preaches the gospel, so to speak, and he's seen some come and obviously some rejecting, but ultimately, those people that are growing and, and, and becoming mature for the point for the kingdom of God, the reality is he doesn't really know. He goes to sleep and he wakes up and it's grown a bit more, and he's grown a bit more. It's beyond his cognition as to how that's happening. How is it that this person again, let's use a, a typical Luke-style thing, uh, a, 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 a drug addict who was homeless on the street, you know, the first time he heard the gospel was was out of his mind and all of a sudden it's like the Lord awakens him and he hears the gospel being preached to him as someone is just there at Lucia Market speaking the gospel and he hears it and all of a sudden he's like, I need to change my life. And as soon as he is, he's got his faculties, he's, he's starting to get his life together. He's responding to the gospel. How does that man grow? At the same time, you can talk to somebody who, from a culture you believe are culturally acceptable to the gospel. A, a, a fellow Nigerian brother who, again, he's smart, he's grown up in the church, but yet all he has is difficult questions as to why he doesn't believe the Bible. Why he's moved on. Why is that man growing and this man not? Well, it's all above our cognition as to how the work of the Spirit is differing in both of these people. The success of his work then is determined by an agent Beyond his awareness And this we call the Holy Spirit and the work of the spirit. We have another example and another parable in the parable of the mustard seed in verses 30 to 32. This final parable helps us set expectations high, but it does so by grounding it in humility. Zechariah 4.10 says this, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Again, this is the context of Zerubbabel. One, the first, again, we've been dealing with Ezra and Nehemiah. Before even Ezra and Nehemiah even came anywhere near um, Jerusalem, Zerubbabel was there. So Zerubbabel only saw literally rubble overgrown he, he, he just basically saw nothing there was no temple there was not even any half completed wall all there was was basically the desolation from 70 years previous when Nebuchadnezzar had raised the city to the ground and obviously all the growth and no doubt having to chase away wild dogs chase away wild animals and all the rest of it so he saw hopelessness And so the context of this is that you will see this become an effective work. The plumb line suggesting building. You will see this change. You will start to see this area recultivated to now support life. The kingdom of God in which the parables are about is not to be despised because it is currently small in its scale. Because it will grow. I mean, even by virtue of where we are today, where where we meet the disciples, even in the book of Acts, to where we are today and seeing the proliferation of the gospel into so many different places. Regardless of whether we believe how many of these people are faithful Christians, the reality is is that the gospel has had an impact. As so many people have wrote, so many even non-believers have wrote about the impact of Christianity for Western culture. It has changed the way in which we live. It has created a place, he said, if we we were left to paganism, it would not have created what we see around us today. It would not have created the laws in which we have today. And these are non-Christian writers, historians who would write about the impact of Christianity on Western culture. We are living in the days of big things. It's not the kingdom of God as it will be, but we are starting to see what the kingdom of God can do. Even as we look around us. You know, the first time Moses left Egypt, it was by himself. There's that small work. He tried. The only person he could get out of Egypt was himself. And he went away, and then he grew, became a better man, the man God needed him to be, and he goes back, and he leaves with a multitude. There's your mustard seed. The kingdom of God grows. But we also see this in its final phase of the kingdom of God in the book of Daniel. And there's a great promise. I'm going to read this section from the book of Daniel, Daniel 2, verses 31 to 35. And this is Daniel explaining to King Nebuchadnezzar the dream in which he saw. And he says this to the king, you know, and he finally, God finally reveals the dream and he's able to present this dream and, and, and unpack it to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says this, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet. The feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer freshen floors. That's the kingdoms of the kingdoms of this world disappearing and going away into the, in, in, into the, I guess, into the history books. And the wind carried them away, so that no trace of them could be found. Well, I guess they won't even be in the history books, right? But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. The stone that the builders rejected, the stone that was not made by no man, was not crafted by any man, was not, was as it were, formed by the seed of man, was born in the the, the womb of a woman, but was not formed by the seed of a man. He now becomes this stone cut out with no hand. The stone from God, the stone that the builders rejected and now becomes this glorious kingdom that fills the whole earth when all these other empires have gone. When the empires of what? The English empire, obviously, it's already gone, isn't it? America, starting already in the shade, as it were, to China. Even when China is gone and any other subsequent kingdom, there will only be the kingdom of God. Do not despise the days of small beginning. That's the parable. That's the meaning of the parable. It will outshine all others. And it will have its day in the sun. So by this parable, Jesus sets the expectations of his disciples high. The kingdom of God that began with them in that that the small huddle of disciples will one day fill the earth and will become the new Eden. I want to spend a little bit of time on this final editorial note that we see in the final verses, verses 33 and 34. And it's important because I want to make a big pitch here which I think that we should not overlook. We must not skip over the final editorial note because it addresses what I believe to be a big issue in the modern church. If most of us are honest, the Bible on a whole is still something of a parable to us. We read it in English translations, but... We really don't know how to unpack it. These two last verses remind us that we need to understand his word on God's terms. Not in our own, well, in my experience, this means this. On God's terms. There's nothing that jars biblical teachers more than, well, in my experience, <laughs> this means this. Really? And how do you know you're right? <laughs> That's why I had to put that caveat. On God's terms. In order to be in his will, to know the perfect, the good and the perfect, and the acceptable will of God, you really need instruction. Instruction. And I know some people will come, oh yeah, I only need the Spirit of God to teach me. Well, you know what the apostles also said? There are many spirits in the world. (laughs) You better believe it. There are many spirits in the world. world, And if 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 you could leave it down to that, Jesus would have just stayed in heaven and just said, let the Spirit teach them. The Spirit does indeed teach us. But he also leaves us a breadcrumb trail to make sure we're on the right track. We need to spend time with the teacher in order for him to unpack our worldview. In order that he can give us The kingdom worldview. So, this is what these this this last verse in particular is saying is that they spent time with Jesus where he can unpack their misplaced Jewish first century misconceptions of who God and what God is, and how He works. And believe it or not, modern church, contemporary church today, we also need the Spirit of God. We also need good faithful Bible teachers to help you unpack your unbiblical worldview. Amen. It needs to happen. It can't be something you relegate as a secondary issue. It is not enough to sit and hear from afar. I'm, 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 at least I'm listening to the Sunday teaching There is much that happens in my head when I teach and I know for every other teacher here that you can't really unpack here. I am just giving you the highlights. If if you, you think of it like a math problem where it's in how you came to those sums. You know, all I'm doing is giving you the conclusions of what I believe the text says. But what you really need is how did you get there? And that's all those little working out. That's where, again, if you, again for those of you who understand math exams, it's, it's seeing the working out, even if you get the answer wrong, that you're going to get the most marks on. That working out is important because it means you're going through a process. You're trying to understand what you're trying to accomplish. For this reason, we need to draw near and be taught how to think in the values of the kingdom of God. I'm gonna put out the stool again. We've had many attempts to carry on and try to make the programs for discipleship um, consistent in this church. And for one reason or another, we all get weary with it. We've set up Bible studies. We've set up community groups. These are discipleship programs. They're not optional. If your week is busy, find ways to be discipled. The gospel, as given to them, as a mandate to the apostles that the at the end of this particular gospel, was not to go out and make steady Sunday churchgoers. And even that can be a challenge for some of us, right? It was go out and make disciples of men. Meaning all mankind, meaning all people. Make disciples. The end goal is not to try and create casual cultural Christians to make people who are diligently trying to understand what the gospel is so that they can also faithfully transmit it. This is how the gospel survives from generation to generation. Because people are disciples and not casual listeners. Application-wise, where do we go from here? Well, let's say this. On a horizontal level, person to person, we have learned to listen to each other's stories. And again, if we are truthful, some we love and some we hate, some we don't believe and some we don't understand. What we have in the form of the Bible is his story overlaid on ours. That's why they use that Clever phrase, his story, his story, over our story. In a way, you can say that the Bible is a parable that appears to be a riddle. A riddle to many, but clarity to many others. On a subjective level, our stories can be very important to us. But it's only when you place it into the objective reality of God's story that we get a fuller understanding of our own. We may be helpful to see our stories and and a collection of life experiences as an excursus. An excursus is a a digression or an incidental excursus. Um, excursion as in a narrative where where something goes off on another tangent. In this sense a digression need not mean something unrelated. Something unrelated to the main point of a narrative. Most often they are used by the authors because they will help the overall flow of the story. Providing This is the the clause, providing that the digression comes back and links into the main story. Our stories, our personal journeys are not pointless. They're not meaningless. I'm not here saying to you, well, you know what, you need to get over yourself. Our subjective realities are important because that's how we live. That's how we understand. But. If you want to understand all the difficulties the highs and the lows of your life you really need God's story overlaid on yours in order for you to make sense lest you become bitter I regularly use the example of Joseph as an example of how this how this is done if if Joseph in Egypt, looking at his brothers, didn't have his story to overlay on his one, he would have looked at his brothers with bitterness. And he would have been rubbing his hands as soon as Israel drew his last breath, ready to take vengeance. But he was able to see the hardships and the difficulties of his own life in the providence of God. He saw the realities of his life. What you had meant to do to me was evil. He was honest. But God meant it for good so that all these people this day are saved. And they're alive. If you think your life is hard, You need his story to give you some kind of context as to how do I understand the mess my life is in. Sometimes the way Christians talk, it's like they don't even believe in Romans 8.28. I'm going to be honest with you. All things will indeed work together for good. For them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. We need his story over ours. So that we have a context. Like I said, our lives are just excursuses from the main point. But if we bring it back to him, we will understand our own stories fully in his Mark quotes from Isaiah, and I would like to quote from Isaiah as well. Just to clarify my point today as I wind up. I want to read from Isaiah 53 1 to 6. Who has believed what what he has heard from us? Or I like the old King James. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and he was, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God. Stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep in our own excurses have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all if we reject God's story in favor of one of our own then we will suffer the burden of being lost in our own story story that will eventually as you get older Lord grant your life will seem more and more and more and less meaningless unless you find that in him we live and move and have our being let's pray father we have um, we have come to your word hopefully humbly Hopefully, as good soil. Hopefully, as people who are willing to respond to the call, to understand our stories in the context of your story. Hopefully, understanding of how parables, dear Lord, are are here as a challenge, dear Lord, to our own preconceptions. The challenge to live, as it were, by kingdom values. Kingdom values that see forgiveness as not as a light matter, but as something that really ought to motivate us to change the way we treat people. To understand, eh, Lord God, that the human heart itself is is varying in different degrees, eh, Lord, to how they will receive your word. We've also seen today the glory of how your kingdom, though small, is already growing large. And larger still. And yet, Lord, even as we look at (laughs) some of the glorious things the West has accomplished, dear Lord Father, amidst some of the most infamous, we can sit soundly here today and, and say, because of what Daniel saw, and say the best is also yet to come. The new Eden will come. And it will fill the earth. It will not just be a, you know, as the, as the prophet says, the, 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 the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the sea covers the earth. Father, thank you for this glorious hope that we have in you. Thank you, dear Lord God, that you've given us your word so that your story can come alongside our stories. And again, give it meaning. It can be overlaid and unpacked for us, dear Lord Father, what it is. Where is it we're coming from? Where are we are going? Help us, dear Lord Father, to, to respond to that story, even that story that that report that Isaiah speaks about of who would receive this savior. All of our iniquity has been laid upon him. Help us, dear Lord Father, to respond to it, to know that there is an answer. Or not just merely for an answer to the wickedness out there which we can so easily see, but also the wickedness that lies within us. Though we are, a, we are the image of God, Lord, yet we have indeed all gone astray. Help us, O Lord, Father. Help any that would need to respond to this message as, as true believers today. Let them to do, help them to do so, because you are faithful. And Lord, you said the, is, the field is white unto harvest, Help us to continue to preach the gospel faithfully. Lord, knowing that, Lord, there is indeed a crop out there. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.